following message is by Reggie Ramos of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Our text for today comes from Acts chapter 26. We're not going to read the whole text actually, but uh, through the course of the message, we'll travel through a good portion of that chapter. But the title of today's message is, Can You Handle the Truth? Not, you can't handle the truth, but can you handle the truth? And let me begin with this question. How do you handle the truth? Let me explain what I mean by painting a scenario. Husband and wife are out shopping. Wife comes out of the dressing room, turns to husband and says, does this dress make me look fat? If you've been in that situation, on the lady's side, let me ask, are you really looking for the truth? Are you? Or do you want him to tell you what you want to hear. Well, this is what happened to the man who told her what, or who told her the truth. You can read there. His last words were, yes, dear, those jeans make you look fat. Can you handle the truth? Or how about that same scenario from the men's side? What if the truth is, in fact, yes, it does make you look fat? How do you handle the truth? I think there are a few schools of thought here. There are some of us, some men, who would say, well, she asked. Look at this. Does this dress make me look fat? No, your face does. There are some people who treat the truth like that. There are others who treat the truth like this. You know, well, I don't want to hurt her feelings, so I won't tell her the truth. Or maybe a little bit more diplomatic is, well, I don't want her to find out the hard way, so in love I'll tell her. Now, this is not a very serious situation. Well, maybe it is, but let's change it a little bit. What if your spouse, husband or wife, made a chicken dish for community group? Potluck, right? And at the end of the night, he or she noticed that nobody really ate it, you know? And... He or she turns to you at the end of the night and asks, well, how was the chicken? How do you handle the truth? Do you want to hear the truth? Do you really want to hear the truth? Because sometimes the truth hurts. These scenarios are pretty minor, but still can be painful. But there are some more serious issues where the truth can hurt. Like this. You know... You're not as good at what you do as you may think. Maybe you've got an anger problem. How do you tell somebody with an anger problem the truth that they have an anger problem? Or how about this one? You're addicted to blank. You know, addicts really wrestle with that truth. I'm not an addict. I've got it under control. There are some truths... That can hurt. I think sometimes we're afraid of the truth. And so we try to ignore it. We try to suppress it. We try to trivialize it. Because we don't really want to face it. But the truth, though painful at times, can actually put us on a path to healing. A path to restoration. A path to redemption. A path to freedom. Salvation. At the heart of today's passage in Acts 26 is the message of the gospel truth and the impact that it has on various people. Today we're going to walk through the text and see how people handled the truth. We'll see how Paul received the truth when it came to him and how he handled it. We'll see his brilliant handling of the truth as he seeks to make it clear to other people. And finally, we'll see how others, Festus and Agrippa, responded to that same truth that Paul responded to. 
And in all of this, I want you to be asking yourself, how do I, how do you handle the truth of God? And so as we come into Acts chapter 26, we're going to be starting in verse 18. So I need to set the stage a little bit. The Apostle Paul has been in prison for the last two years. The authorities on multiple occasions have not found him, to, I mean, have found him innocent of a lot of the allegations, of all of the allegations. But because of a lot of sticky politics and polit- politicians who want to get ahead, he's still in chains. Politicians who wanted to stay popular with the big crowd, the influential crowd, they, 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 they uh, submitted to those desires and kept Paul in prison. The last thing that happened was that uh, because of injustice, Paul said, you know what? You guys are being unfair here at the local level. I want Caesar to hear my case. I want this to be brought to the Supreme Court, which was to the emperor Caesar himself, which he had the right to do as a Roman citizen. So he said, let my case be tried before him. And that's where we come to in the passage for today. Paul is in the midst of a hearing. It's not a trial, but the officials are trying to gather information to figure out how to explain to Caesar that Paul is going to Caesar. They couldn't just send him there because there needed to be sufficient reason for him to go to the Supreme Court. And so he's here in this, uh, he's here in this hearing. And in an earthly sense, it's a very intimidating situation. As Luke describes it, it's a hall full of people. But it's not just the number of people that makes it intimidating. It's who these people are. These were not just people off the street listening to a hearing, you know, kind of like maybe the people's court audience, you know. I don't even know who would want to go watch the people's court, but there's people in that court. These were important people of the city, high-ranking officials, military tribunes, commanders of Roman legions. And it says even there are all kinds of prominent men. These situations were designed to highlight who was in power and who was not. And toward the center of it all, there was Festus, the governor of the Roman province of Judea. And then next to Festus was Agrippa, King Agrippa, who was the ruler over a small kingdom and the symbolic head of the Jewish nation. And he, but this Jewish nation, as you may know at this time, was subjugated to the Roman Empire. So He wasn't like a huge king. He was like a little king who still had other people above him. Like me, I'm the king of my home. But maybe not. (laughs) And finally, there is Agrippa's sister, Bernice. Her past plays somewhat of a role in today's passage. And it doesn't say much about her, but her past is this. She was once married to a man named Marcus. And then later... She was married to her uncle and then to a man named Polemo, the king of Cilicia. But then she left him pretty quickly and then she came to live with Agrippa, her brother. But the rumor had it that they were having an incestuous relationship, Agrippa and Bernice. Game of Thrones. She eventually becomes a mistress of the Roman Empire or the, the Roman emperor Vespasian, and then his son Titus. So think about this woman, you know, bouncing around, you know. That was Bernice. So those three people were standing there and listening to Paul. So they're gathered, and Paul is making his defense and explaining to him why he does what he does and why he has run into trouble with the Jews for spreading the message of Jesus because of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And he explains that as he's been preaching the gospel, he was arrested. And then a riot broke out because of this. And therefore he was taken into Roman custody where he was in, you know, under house arrest for the past two years. But now in this hearing, he's explaining his story. How just like the Jews who were opposing him now, he at one time had been fiercely opposing the Jew, uh, those who had followed Christ. He was a fierce enemy to Christians at one point in his life, just like those people were now fierce enemies of him, trying to have him killed. 
But he goes on to share earlier in chapter 16, uh, 26, the amazing encounter that he had with the risen Christ when he was on the way to Damascus. Now get this, he was on the way to Damascus to kill Christians, to, to persecute Christians. And while he was on that road to Damascus, the risen Jesus appeared to him in a vision, appeared to him like blinding light. And he's explaining to them his reaction to that encounter. And that's what we want to look at today. So can you picture it? There's a man with a crown on the platform. There's a governor in rich robes next to him. And in front of them is Paul, a prisoner in chains. And now he's going to tell Agrippa, the king, his response to that vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it starts in verse 19. It says there, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, Paul explains, when I had this experience of seeing a light that was shining brighter than the sun, and I heard a heavenly voice telling me that Jesus was alive, and that Jesus was the one that I was persecuting, and that he had a a purpose and a mission for my life, I didn't ignore it. In fact, he couldn't ignore it. When God breaks through to you and reveals the truth to you and speaks to you so powerfully and so directly, I think the dumbest thing that you could do is ignore it or trivialize it as if it really didn't matter. Again, think about this. Paul didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but Jesus spoke to him in this powerful, powerful way. He couldn't ignore it. Instead, he listened to it. He obeyed it. When that happens to you, you should listen to it and obey it. When God speaks, you should respond. And that's what Paul says he did. He says there, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. God interrupted my life and so I responded to him. When I came face to face with the truth that Jesus was alive. You see, that was what was at stake here. Paul was saying, these Christians are saying that Jesus was alive. But you know what? We killed Jesus. But when Jesus spoke to him, wait a minute. How can somebody dead speak? He came face to face with the truth that Jesus was alive and that he had risen from the dead and that therefore he had to be the son of God, the Messiah, the Lord. When Paul came face to face with that, it changed everything. He gave his life hook, line and sinker to God. All of a sudden, God's word had weight to him. And so... He did what God wanted him to do. Go and tell people everywhere that Jesus is not dead, but that Jesus is alive and that he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is God. Not just to Jews who believe some of that, but to everyone, everywhere. And I like how Paul describes what turning to God is there in verse 20 that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So when you receive the truth, look at what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to turn to God. Not just in your head. You go in a different direction. You turn away from sin. You turn away from self. You turn to God, not just in your head, but you, and then you give evidence for that turn in your life. It's not just a change of mind, but it's a change in behavior, in actions, a change in life. That's what happens when you handle the truth. You live according to it. It changes you. It's not just a change of mind 
but a change of actions. Life transformation happens when you handle the truth. And Paul goes, in, goes on in verse 21 to basically say, and that's what, that's what got me in trouble with the Jews. It's why they were having this hearing. Look at what it says there in verses 21 to 23. It says, For this reason, because I was obedient to this call, because I was preaching the gospel, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now what's interesting about this is Paul had done nothing to break the law. What he just explained he was doing was not illegal, but nevertheless he was imprisoned for trumped-up charges. But why? Maybe it was out of the envy of these leaders, misguided zeal. But even despite that, listen to how he describes his situation there in verse 22. He says there, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. Now listen to that. Paul plainly says, I, the prisoner here, the one in change, the one in rags, have had the help of God. And I think maybe to that audience, that might have sounded a little bit odd. Maybe even to us. Why? Because he is a prisoner. He's in chains. Really? You have the help of God? For the last two years, he's been under arrest. He hasn't been a free man. And yet he is claiming, to this day, I have had the help of God. Some people might think, well, if you're in this situation because of the help of God, you know, I don't know if I want... God's help. Or others might say, you have God's help, then how come, he, how come he doesn't help you out of this situation? And I think to answer those questions, you get something very revealing. The reason is because Paul's greatest concern in life was not his freedom. Paul's greatest concern in life was not his personal comfort. When he came to the truth, that Jesus was the Messiah, was the Lord, it changed everything for him. It changed his goals. It changed his priorities, his values, everything. The truth changed him. And the truth of the resurrection enabled him to say this. In Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And in Acts 20, 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's greatest concern in life was being faithful to the purpose that God gave to him. And part of the, a part of that purpose that God revealed to him was to present to tr the truth of Christ before everyone, even before kings, which was told to him, foretold to him in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Before governors, before all people, he says in that verse, small and great, that's why he's had the help of God. And if those chains gave him the opportunity then he would say this was God's help to him. I find this so encouraging and so rebuking at the same time because in my life, all too often, I want things to be easy. Anybody in that camp with me? No? Okay. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, truth tellers. <laughs> Oftentimes, I want things to be easy. I want to be comfortable and if I want the help of God, I want God to make it easier, you know? Like, God, I just open my mouth and make some other voice come out that's exactly what she was. That would be great, right? But this convicts me and challenges me to share in Paul's heart that God would help me to fulfill God's purpose in my life. And if that would mean chains if it would mean seasons of discomfort, if it means being misunderstood, 
then I want to be able to endure it and endure it with joy for the sake of Christ. That's how it was for Paul when he came to the truth of who Jesus Christ was, that he was the Messiah and that therefore his word was true and all of his promises therefore were true. Then it changed everything for him, his values, his priorities, his life. He was more interested in telling people about Jesus than he was in his own personal freedom. And he would do that even to the point of death. Why? Because the truth of the resurrection meant that this life was in everything. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's more. And that truth impacted how he lived today. His values today. To live for eternal things and not just temporary things. That truth that he was the Messiah trickled down to all of his promises that Jesus gave and impacted everything for him. But back to the point in the second half of verse 22. Listen to what it says there. It says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. In other words, Paul is explaining here that in all the preaching that he did, that, he was get, that was getting him in trouble, he never said anything that Moses and the prophets didn't say. And that's an important detail because remember, who was it that was persecuting him? It was the Jews. The Jews who were trying to uphold what Moses and the prophets said. They came against him for that preaching. But what he's explaining here is that when he talked about Jesus, he wasn't saying anything that Moses and the prophets didn't say. And he's challenging Agrippa, who, brought, who was brought into this hearing. Remember, Agrippa is the king of the Jewish nation. So as the king of the Jewish nation, he would have been familiar with the Old Testament. He would have known Moses and the prophets and so Paul is challenging Agrippa because he's familiar with the scriptures. And he's saying, you know what? You know this, King Agrippa. You know what the Old Testament scriptures say. You know that this is just in fulfillment of what had been promised before. As he alludes to that in verse 23, it says that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Christ, but he's preaching it from what they were familiar with, from what they would understand. And he's saying, you know what? Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. I didn't say anything different than what you knew. Your knowledge was just limited because you didn't realize Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Christ. And if I were to play out this scene in my head, I can imagine at this point in this, in this hearing, the tension, you know, in the room is building. The tension is just getting really thick. Paul is looking at Agrippa in his eyes and he's saying, you know this, Agrippa. You know these things. You know the law of Moses. You know what the prophets said and what they were talking about and pointing to in a Messiah to come, who would be the resurrection. That's Christ. And in that moment, the light of the gospel was shining in that room. And I believe in Agrippa's own head, connections were being made. Man, I think he's right. The truth is coming to bear upon their hearts, and the tension is rising and it's getting uncomfortable. Doesn't it get uncomfortable sometimes when someone is speaking the truth of God? Right? Yes. It does make you look a little fat. Uncomfortable. Or even when a preacher is preaching the word of God. And you're here on a Sunday. Dr. Steve is preaching. Or one of the others are preaching. And you're here on a Sunday. And you kind of feel. Even though that person. Even though the preacher is not looking at you. You feel like. They are talking to you directly. And it's getting uncomfortable. You're feeling a sense of conviction. 
That's what I think is happening in that room. It's getting uncomfortable. The tension is rising. That's what I think it was like in that moment until Festus breaks that tension and says this in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He just interrupts, basically, in that tense moment, in the midst of that challenge. And he says, you know what, Paul? You're crazy. You're obviously an intelligent man, but with all this learning, you've gone a little cuckoo. From our perspective, we see that Festus just doesn't get it yet. He's still blind to the truth. But if we think about, you know, we get inside his head, we might be able to understand a few reasons why he was calling Paul crazy. First of all, Paul was insisting that there was this man who died and came back to life. Some people would say, you know what, if you believe that, you're stupid, you're crazy. Another reason is that Paul explained he saw this vision and that vision changed his life. Again, I would think maybe Festus is thinking, yeah, only crazy people see visions and change their life. And then finally, he saw, he saw Paul's life. Paul is in chains. And he's saying he's the one who has God's help. And he's, he's not willing to give up what he's doing to get out of those chains but he's going to keep doing it. That's crazy. You're a fanatic. And yet, it was the truth of God. The message of Jesus, of who he is, and what he came to do for us, even when it is faithfully presented and lived, will make some, of, will make some people think that we're crazy. To live a faithful life in Christ, I think people, if you really live it out to its fullest, there are some people who are going to think, you're crazy. From an outsider's perspective, living a life all in for Jesus will seem stupid. Crazy. How could you do that? How could you think that? How could you believe that? That's exactly what Festus saw in Paul. You're crazy. But what did Paul say in reply? It says right there in verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Let's consider this. Paul says, I'm not crazy. My message is true and reasonable. Now, there are times when God works above and beyond our reason. Like, you know, when we go through struggles and suffering, sometimes we don't know what he is really doing. Why, Lord? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But Christianity at its core is a reasonable faith. We don't ask people to make a blind leap of faith into some unknown darkness and just hope that God catches you and that God saves you. No. We ask people to make an intelligent and reasoned step of faith based on evidence, based on truth. It is a step of faith, but it isn't a blind one into the darkness. It's a step of faith based on things that we can evaluate, things that are true. Like this, it is true that Jesus of Nazareth really walked on this earth and taught what he taught and did what he did. It is true that he died on a cross as a substitute for the penalty of our sins, not his own. It is true that he rose from the dead and his resurrection is therefore proof that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf so that we can find forgiveness because of who he is and what he did for us. The resurrection is true. They couldn't find his body. He was alive and he spoke to Paul 
And he's alive today. And he speaks to us. None of this has been disproven. All of this is true, whether or not you agree with it. It really happened. Can I challenge you today? Even as Paul stood before all those important people and spoke to them with boldness and challenged them to put their trust in Jesus and who Jesus is and what he did for them, I want you, I want to challenge you today as well to put your trust in Jesus fully. Not because you grew up in church and this is just what you're supposed to do. Not because of tradition or habit or ritual or because this is what good Christians do. But submit to him and change your life because it is true. Because it's true. You and I as rational human beings ought to live our lives and focus our lives and build our lives on things that are true. Not on lies. If the story of Jesus is true, then the only reasonable thing for us to do is to live for him. Right? Paul doesn't become the crazy man. The half-hearted, the unbelieving are the crazy people if it's true. You know what I'm saying? If Listen... If it isn't true, then I, for one, would want to know that it's not true. If it isn't true, then we're all a bunch of fools. Why are we here if it's not true? You know, it's like coming together, coming together every week to talk about, you know, I don't know, what's what's a popular, like, what's a popular movie today? Let's just say, like, The Amazing Spider-Man. Every week we're coming here to talk about The Amazing Spider-Man and, and draw, just draw out good moral lessons from it. That would be ridiculous for us to do that. If it's not true, then we're all a bunch of fools. And Paul himself writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what it means. If, if what we're doing here is not true, then we are the biggest idiots for being here. And me and Dr. Steve would be the biggest idiots for making the sacrifices that we make. You know, think about this. When we do weddings, you know, what's more important, wedding picture or the vows before the Lord, right? How much do wedding photographers make today for one wedding? Ten grand, five grand, too much. What do pastors make at the wedding? We're fools, the biggest fools, if this is not true. I'm a fool. And my mom was trying to remind me of this about, I don't know, 22 years ago. Was it right, 22? 23, 21 years ago, when I received my call to ministry. You know, I was an engineer. And I was raised to become an engineer. Or I was an engineering student. I was raised to become an engineering, stu- an engineer, you know. And therefore to make like, you know, engineering money when I got out of school. And, you know, in my family, I had the best grades. I was the best student. I had the best, you know, resume in my family. And my brother and my sister, when they graduated college, they got pretty good jobs. My sister and my, they were making money at the time that this was happening. I was like, okay. But then I said, no, Lord. And I said, okay, Lord, I'll go into ministry. And when I told that to my mom, she said, what a waste. We poured all this into you for your schooling so that you can make money and have a good life. And then you're going to do this? She said, well, why don't, why don't you just get an engineering job and then support the church? Just give money to the church. And I said, that's not what God is calling me to do. 
I'm a fool if this is not true then. And she was right on that day. By God's grace, God has changed her heart and she's happy now that I'm in ministry. But if it's not true, we're fools. But if it is true, we're fools if we're not following it hook, line, and sinker. One of the big problems today is that people think that everything has to be done on the basis of feeling. Should I give my life to Jesus? Well, do I feel like it? Should I obey him? Well, do I feel like it? If I do, I'll do it. If I don't, I won't. But if you feel like it, that's good. But even if you don't feel like it, it's still true. Your lack of feelings don't make it any less true. So do what's right and do what is true. And that is what Paul is saying here to Festus when he says, I'm speaking true and rational words. But then he turns his attention back to Agrippa in verse 26. And he says, he says this, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. What Paul is basically saying is this. You know what, Agrippa? You know these things. None of it was done in secrecy. We weren't hiding when we were preaching about Jesus Christ. It's all been under your nose. You can't ignore it. You know, Festus, he's kind of off the hook because he, didn't, he probably didn't have this history of Jesus. And so all that Paul was saying didn't make sense. But to Agrippa, Paul says, you know these things. You know what the law of Moses says. You know what the prophets say. You know John the Baptist. Your dad killed John the Baptist. You know these things. And Paul, through that, was appealing to truth and reason as he spoke. It wasn't hearsay. It wasn't just opinion. He pointed to evidence that they knew at that time, that they could verify that these facts were true. And if the tension in the room was thick before then, I don't think it could get any thicker at this point. Paul, again, looking him straight in the eye, says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul is brilliant here. He appeals to things that Agrippa was already familiar with and knew. And he brings the challenge directly to him when he says, do you believe? And if you notice, he doesn't say, do you believe in Jesus? He starts with, do you believe the prophets? Because if Agrippa would say that he believed the prophets, the dots could be connected and it would lead to Christ. That was his confidence because this is all about Christ. And what we notice here is that Paul brought Agrippa to the point of decision. Agrippa, I'm asking you flat out. I know I'm a prisoner and you are a king, but I'm not afraid of you. Do you believe? And I think this is the point where most, if not all, Christians start to get uncomfortable. Pressing others about what they believe or pressing others to a decision, right? Do you believe? But it's a legitimate thing. Jesus himself often called people to make a decision, but it is uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable putting other people in that position because they get uncomfortable, right? I can sympathize with that. I don't enjoy making people feel uncomfortable. And it's not our goal to make people feel uncomfortable. But you and I, as Christians, when we handle the truth, need to accept the fact that there may be a consequence of discomfort when we talk about Jesus and his truth. It may be a byproduct of telling the truth. 
And if it is true that Jesus is who he says he is, the son of God, the Messiah, and if he did what the Bible says he did, then it means everything. And it is entirely appropriate to ask people if they believe in Jesus. Do you believe this? Many people will squirm at that question. You know, I don't want to be painted into a corner. I don't want to be forced to make a decision. And so what they do is they don't. They don't make a decision. But I heard Greg Laurie once. Who's a pa- Greg Laurie is a pastor in Southern California who frequently holds evangelistic crusades that invite people to believe in Jesus Christ. And Greg Laurie often said this, to be undecided is to be decided. To be undecided is to be decided that you're not going to believe. And it's true. You can say, well, you know, I won't make a decision whether or not I'm for Jesus. But to be undecided is really to be, un- is to be decided that you're not going to follow him. And that's exactly why Paul was pressing the point home with Agrippa. Look at what he says again there in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. But look at Agrippa's response to Paul in the next verse. It says there, And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? What kind of answer is that? He's basically saying, You think I'm going to believe just after this short presentation? And you know what I think? I think Paul was getting to him. I think it was making sense to him. I bet his heart was beating fast. And I can imagine him squirming in his seat, but he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't agree. He, couldn't, he just couldn't say yes. So he throws out a question to deflect the question, to deflect the pressure and redirect the conversation. Some of us are really good at that, right? You know, you're trying to press them into... A point and, and all of a sudden you realize you're talking about something else. Whoa, what happened here? Agrippa did that. He deflected the pressure and redirected the conversation. And this brings us to a very important question. If Christianity is so true, if it is so right, why do so many people reject it? I think we can learn from Agrippa's example. And here is why I think he couldn't say yes. Now remember the scene. There's Agrippa, the king. Festus, Bernice, standing in the center of this huge hall, surrounded by the other dignitaries. Paul in front of them, making the challenge. And why did Agrippa balk? I think because he looked to his side and he saw his sister, with whom he was having an incestuous relationship. And perhaps Agrippa knew that if he accepts what Paul says, then that's going to go against her pretty strongly. And he would have to give up. He would have to turn his back on the immorality that he was involved in at that moment. He would have to live differently. And in that moment, it was too much to give up. Maybe he thought about his reputation and his prestige as he thought about his own crown, or as he looked around and and he saw Festus. And Festus called Paul crazy. And so if I say I believe what Paul is saying, then that makes me part of his group. So I'm going to be crazy. In front of all these men, are you you serious, Paul? I'm not going to do that. I'm not willing to say yes. I'll be the laughing stock of the empire. I'll lose my position. I'll lose everything. And because of that wrestling in his heart, he deflects the question. I think Paul's argument had gotten to him, so he didn't outright say no. But these other thoughts maintained a hold on him so that he just deflected the question. And at the end of the day, it is a tragic moment of indecision. It's tragic when the truth of God comes clearly to, his peop- to, clearly to people And yet they turn their back on it out of fear of man. Or instead they should say, no, Jesus is true. So I will give my life to him. Well, look at Paul's response in verse 29. 
Paul says this. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Once again, Paul the prisoner, in the presence of the elite of the city, declares boldly, you better believe I'm trying to make you a Christian. And not just you, Agrippa, but everyone who's here. There's no apology. It's not arrogance. It's the truth in love. If Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus is the Messiah, who is the Lord, and only in Jesus do we have eternal life and forgiveness of sin and the resurrection, then you know all of you, if you are not in Jesus, then you're in trouble and you need to know it. You bet you I want to convert you. You bet you I want you to know Jesus. I want you to come to the truth. Paul endured so much suffering, so much affliction, so much injustice, all so that he can have the opportunity to witness for Christ so that others might know the truth. And when Paul says that to Agrippa, it was just too much for him. Look at his response in verse 30 and 31. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they get up and leave, basically. Agrippa says, I can't, let, I can't keep letting you talk. I can't let you keep talking. Does that make sense? Shut up, Paul. I can't let you keep making sense. I can't let the Holy Spirit continue to speak to my heart. He couldn't handle it. They walk away. And listen to their conversations as they go. When they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I think there's a lesson to learn here. Their agenda for this meeting was to see if Paul was guilty of anything. Right? They, they were exploring. God's agenda for this meeting through his servant Paul was for them to hear the truth and to respond to it. They walk away from the faithful witness. And listen, it's, it's as if they're just back to business as usual. Look, you know what? We didn't find anything that we wanted to find out. Or what we found out was this man was innocent still. And they trivialized everything that Paul had spoken to them. It was just business as usual in the midst of that gospel presentation. Was it a waste then for Paul? I don't think so. Paul puts it all on the line to be faithful to his calling, to be a witness. And to be a witness, to handle the truth to others, to give it to them. To be faithful to God as a witness doesn't mean that we are, will make converts every single time. We are not in charge of the results. Our call, as we remember all the way in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is to be his witnesses and to trust God that he will take care of the results. Today, I want to call you to examine your life. Maybe you've made a decision to agree with the truth sometime in the past, but let me ask you, have you are you in continual repentance of turning away from yourself and sin, turning to God and giving evidence for it in your life? Or are you banking on a decision to say, yes, I agree that Jesus is the Son of God how many ever years ago or months ago or days ago? How much has the truth of Jesus Christ made an impact on your life? How have you received it? How have you handled the truth? For Paul, it was everything so that, such that his life was flipped upside down. For you, what is it? Is it a nice addition to your comfortable life? Like insurance? Oh, yeah, you know what? I've got everything I want in this life and I know I'll have it in the next. We finally got, you know, our house, the number of kids that we want. Maybe some of you haven't gotten all of them yet. 
But is, is, Christ, is Christian life just, and, and God's presence and God's truth, just a nice, comfortable addition to your life? But it's not the center, not the foundation? Is it just to help in trouble? Oh, man. God, help me. Things are bad. But when things are good, you know, you're just living on your own. God's truth is ignored until the next time things go wrong. Oh, man, what, 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 what went wrong? Is it just interesting to you today? You know what? You know, I, I kind of like it. You know, uh, I mean, I, I believe a lot of different things, but I kind of like, I, I like what they talk about. It's, it's positive. It makes people better. It's interesting to you. You agree with it in general, but you pick and choose where you really want to follow it. Or is it the foundation upon which your life is built? The argument of Paul was, if this is true, then the only reasonable thing is to surrender everything. Not to just surrender part. Okay, God, you get my Sundays and you get a little bit of my bank account. No, everything. Everything. Today, some of you, maybe all of us, need to make a decision based on the truth. Not based on some decision to agree with him you know, back then. Based on the truth. Not based on, it's because we should. It's true that he is the Son of God. That he is the Lord. And I am his. How about in sharing it with other people? Are you familiar enough with the truth that you can share it effectively with others? Like Paul, carefully wove in the Old Testament to preach about Jesus. Are you afraid of offending people? Are you afraid of being despised by people and being called crazy for what you believe? Will you put your faith in Christ today so that you can be set free from the fear of the opinions of the people around you. Because those things are not going to help you on judgment day. Those things are not going to help you when you stand before God. His opinion is the only one that counts. He is God. Don't make other people's opinions your God. Will you put your faith in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, so that even if people begin to think that you're crazy, are you serious? Are you serious you're going to sacrifice for other people? Are you serious you're going to not have sex before marriage? Are you serious you're going to forgive your wife even though she cheated on you? You're crazy. Today, can you handle the truth? Let us pray.